Welcome back to the 57th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including talking about the kerfuffle, the chaos that is happening in the House of Representatives on Tuesday and Wednesday, and if you haven't heard about that one, trust me, we'll get into it. The quote-unquote reckoning that has been said to be coming for the Republican Party and why maybe the Democrats shouldn't worry about it so much if they want the party to move on from Trump. And then we have an article talking about the year in review and the rise of Poland and Ukraine as a power couple in Europe. Very interesting article. We'll jump to that one at the end for our international view. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, a few years ago, a family member of mine sent over an article describing the coming split in the Republican Party. At the time I saw it, you know, I read it and I thought there was merit to it, but I didn't take it very seriously. But it appears that we are getting ever closer to that reality. With the lack of a united Republican House, and at the time of recording, there is no House Majority Leader, we are most definitely not looking at a unified Republican Party. So my question to you is, where do we go from here? Where does the Republican Party go from here? The Democrats seem to be in lockstep with one another. Whether you like them or not, they're unified. They have a key message that they're trying to send. They have a leader who can rally them. Maybe not the same as Nancy Pelosi, who has been absolutely phenomenal at keeping everybody in line over the last few years. But they still have Hakeem Jeffries, who seems to be pulling them all together. And the Republicans are sat fighting amongst themselves as per usual. So, where do we go from here? I'd love to hear your opinions. Throw them down in the comments section. Let's jump into our first article. This one comes from the New York Times. Speaker fight reveals a divide in disoriented House majority. So the chaos that was captured on national television or the nation's attention on Tuesday in the House of Representatives was a shock to almost, wasn't a shock to almost anyone who's been paying attention to politics over Christmas. Senator McConnell's lack of faith in McCarthy to get this speakership was one hint of what may come over this Christmas. And honestly, when I was watching the C-SPAN video, I was like, oh, Look at this telenovela that's on. Look at this little primetime drama that my mom would like to watch or something to that effect. It just, it's so sad at the end of the day when you sit back and you're wondering, well, well, maybe what happened in Congress today? Maybe you're curious as to how your nation's being governed and you just kind of want to get an insight. You turn on the five o'clock news and then, oh, look. The Republicans are fighting again. There's no moving forward until there's a Speaker of the House, and McCarthy can't get his people in order. And, of course, it's not just on McCarthy, but at the end of the day, it does show his lack of strength as a leader. Or, some would argue more accurately, it shows the hard-headedness, let's put it that way, 
of the Republicans who are very, very conservative and very principled. So, you know, it just it leaves me a little bit discontent with the party. I'm not going to lie. But I don't know what else I should have expected. I mean, watching the chaos over Christmas, we saw that McCarthy had nine peelaways, meaning he couldn't have gotten it anyway. And McConnell literally had no faith in him whatsoever. That's why he signed the omnibus bill, because he didn't know who he'd be negotiating with in the House. He didn't know if McCarthy could get the majority ship. So, or sorry, the majority leadership. And we have a quote here. Quote, House Republicans began their new majority rule, rule on Tuesday with a chaotic and historic debacle. An embarrassing failure to rally around a leader that showcased the difficulties that they will face in performing every, even the basics of governing in their lack of a unifying agenda. Handed narrow control of the House by voters in November, Republicans squandered the opening hours of the new Congress they could have used to spell concerns about their capabilities. Instead, they feuded in a disorderly display over who among them should be Speaker, as the most extreme elements of the new majority repeatedly rejected Representative Kevin McCarthy of California, end quote. And McCarthy, for years, he has been getting a lot of experience. He's been giving service to the party. He's been getting a lot of experience under his belt, basically. He's been fundraising for the party, handling internal matters of the party, but was unable at this time to convince most of his colleagues to fall in line. And, you know, though the average viewer may simply appear, may simply see this as something that appears to be a spectacle, a like I said earlier, a telenovela playing out on C-SPAN, it really does speak to the weakness of the Republican Party. At the end of the day, if you're not able to rally your party around an issue, if you're not able to convince some of your constituents in the House to give up on their principles, and not saying that in a bad way, but saying, we know that you want these three provisions. Well, I want these two provisions. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to make a compromise. We're going to have to give up something we want. We can't sit here like a crying, tantruming baby and say, no, 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 if I don't get my provisions, I'm not voting for it. Because in the House, it's about compromise. And that includes compromising with the other side. That was the beautiful thing that the founders did with our system, which is they made it intentionally hard to pass legislation. They made it a two-thirds rule in the Senate. They made it, I can't remember exact the exact number in the House, and I feel terrible about that. But at the end of the day, it was meant to be that most, a majority, if not a major majority, of the House and congressmen, they all had, the congressmen and the senators, had to agree. They had to compromise. They had to give up some of their more out-there positions or out-there wants and needs in order to compromise with the other side. And people always complain nowadays that things are extremely slow and everything's being passed upon partisan lines. And that's because rules over time have changed. And the real process in the House and the Senate is supposed to be slow it's supposed to be divided. You're supposed to have to give up something you want. You can't always get exactly what you want. You have to compromise. And this just shows that if McCarthy can't make these, in this case, 19 different people compromise, if he can't make them at least come to the table, because he's already given them certain concessions, but no, they want the full nine. They want 
not only to have the power to vote him out if he doesn't do something that they enjoy, but also they want promises on certain commissions, that they're going to go after certain people, the FBI, and other things of this nature. And it's not tenable for McCarthy to promise that right now, but they're not willing to compromise on it. So it shows an inherent weakness that at the end of the day, if the Republic, some Republicans in the Republican Party aren't willing to compromise, that's a weakness. And also if McCarthy can't make them come in, sit down, and compromise, if he can't be the leader of the party that they so desperately need right now, that also shows weakness. So it's a twofold, they're coming at this issue from two sides, and they're proving why the Republican Party is not doing so well right now. And then we have a, another quote that really highlights this. Quote, this paralysis underscored the dilemma facing House Republicans. No matter the concessions made to some of those on the far right, they simply will not relent and join their colleagues, even if it is for the greater good of their party and perhaps the nation. They consider themselves conservative purists who cannot be placated unless their demands are met. And maybe not even then. Their agenda is mostly to defund, disrupt, and dismantle government not to participate in it. It means that whoever emerges from this messy leadership fight will face deep-seated resistance when trying to shepherd spending bills and other measures that are fundamental to governance. Tuesday's spectacle reflected that the House of Republicans have grown more skilled at legislative sabotage than legislative success, leaving the difficult business of getting things done to others." End quote. And this debacle has really led many forward-thinking people to ask a question about 2024. If these people that rely so heavily on the principles, if these principled Republicans don't get their candidate out of the primaries, will they be willing to back a non-Trump or a non-DeSantis presidential candidate? And we, they really, we really do have to look to 2024 and ask that question because at the end of the day, I'm not saying that all these people are MAGA people and I'm not trying to use that term in a bad way. I should probably say not all of these people would support Donald Trump and DeSantis. I'm sure they would at least hear them out, but I don't know that they would support them outright. But the question really does become if they're willing to hold up the speakership of the house which is a big deal don't get me wrong but it is not as big of a deal as the presidential campaign if they're not willing to throw their weight behind the mainstream candidate what happens if they don't get their candidate in the primaries are they going to go out and say no 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 for this presidential election we want to have a third candidate it's going to be an independent candidate or it'll be a f really far right candidate, whatever they decide to do, and then they take support away from the Republican candidate? What's the outlook here? This is a divide that isn't just affecting now. It's going to ripple forward, and if it only gets larger, then you're going to see an empowered Democratic Party for years upon years, because whether you like it, even though there are many different viewpoints, and as I argued, or not argued, but mentioned with my family member years ago, when they sent me the article, I said, I think there's going to be a split in the Democratic Party. And even my family member agreed with me then. But right now, even though they have different policy goals and many, many people from many, many backgrounds, 
they are still unified in trying to get their central message across. So you're going to have a fractured Republican Party that is constantly voting against one another, not supporting each other, and a Democratic Party that may have internal issues, but at the end of the day is still in lockstep. They're going to have control for a good amount of time if this is the case. So those who are who really love Republicans and love their rhinos, I'm not trying to hate, but whoever really loves their rhinos, you need to be thinking about this. You need to be asking yourselves, what are the repercussions of this? Maybe there aren't any. Maybe at the end of the day, nothing really comes of this. They're just doing a horse and pony show. But it could very well ripple forward. And I just think it's something that we need to pay attention to. All right. With that one out of the way, with the chaos, the telenovela finally getting off that 5 o'clock spot, let's jump into a story from the Daily Beast. Skip the reckoning if you want Republicans to move on from Trump. Quote, you Republicans, you may have heard, are due for a reckoning. They should have reckoned with their support for the former president, Donald Trump, when he was impeached the first time or after the January 6th Capitol riot or failing even that after the midterms. The GOP needs to fight about Trump out loud in public. Erstwhile, Trump advisor and former New Jersey governor Chris Christie told the Wall Street Journal in November If there is ever a time for the last sensible Republicans to remember that they are the party of Lincoln, the man who saved the Union and its Constitution, and to declare a war against seditionist wing, wrote the Atlantic's Tom Nicholas in December. This is it, end quote. So my first question is, do Republicans really deserve a reckoning? And what I mean by that is, do they actually have to have a reckoning? Because of their actions, do they deserve to be reckoned, so to speak? The author seems to suggest simply by supporting a man that reoriented the party, the party should pay. But many of these senators and congressmen were falling in line with what the people wanted. Remember, Donald Trump was elected by the people. And the senators and congressmen said, oh, we have a new party here that goes beyond Republicans. It goes to a grassroots populist movement. So maybe we should talk to these people. Maybe we should try to talk about issues that they care about. Maybe we should actually listen to the populists that voted in a mainstream populist candidate, even though he is a little bit more conservative. He is Honestly, he's more of a moderate with conservative leanings, but still. And they kind of fell in line with that messaging. So why should they, do they deserve a reckoning for doing that, for trying to listen to their constituents, listen to the people that put them into office, and actually focus on the issues that people cared about? Now, did they take it a little bit too far in some cases? Did they take it as a all out, oh, we have permission from the people to do whatever we want on our agenda. In some cases, they most definitely did. But I want you to think back to 2008. It was the same thing that happened under the Obama years. He governed within his first two years when he had both the House and the Senate as one of the most progressive presidents in a generation, probably since LBJ. His party fell in line, And while he did have a reckoning eight years later, 
No one at the time was suggesting that they needed one. The only reason that they didn't keep governing in a very progressive manner is because the people spoke back. They slapped back, so to speak, in the parlance of kids today in the midterm elections in 2010 and said, no, 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 you have to moderate a little bit, President Obama. You can't keep passing all these very progressive spending and welfare programs. You can't keep doing this. We're going to rein you back in. And that's why he kind of moderated. And some his people who are looking back and analyzing said that's probably why he won his 2012 bid for president as well. But at the end of the day, his party did the same thing. They fell in line. They went behind the president, the person that very often gets the most votes out of anybody else in the nation for their platform. So, of course, they're going to fall in line and say, okay, this is what the American people want. We have a mandate from them now. Even if they don't necessarily believe it to their core, they don't believe that their mandate is given by the people necessarily, but they understand that the people do elect them in and that these people like the issues that Obama was talking about, so we're going to fall in line. The same thing happened for the Republican Party. They fell in line with Trump. Now, the author does speak at the beginning talking about, well, should they have left him after the Capitol Six riots? Should they left him after his outrageous comments? So on and so forth. And the the idea that they're not going to support their president, that after even horrific events like January 6th, that they are going to not back their president, I think is a little bit silly to me. I'm not saying that they have to endorse every single thing he said, But they're most definitely going to try to sit back, take a critical view, and if they see that there was a genuine effort by Trump to do something or that he didn't mean something in a certain way, they're going to try to point it out. And they've been demonized for doing so because you have to just hate Trump. You can't see any redeeming qualities in Trump. You have to just hate Trump. And at the end of the day, like I said, These people understood that their constituents liked Trump. Not all of them did, but a lot of constituents liked Trump. So they fell in line. They said, okay, he's the leader of our party. We're going to support him because the people like him, and we want to be unified. And it kept them unified for a little bit. Now we see what's happening without Trump at the head of the party. Do I think that he should come back and be the head of the party? I think that's going to be extremely tricky. It's going to lead to an ego fest where he's the center of attention rather than serious policy issues and this new wave of conservatism that seriously needs to be addressed, as we were talking about in the the last segment. But without this clear leader, without this defining light guiding them, essentially giving them, saying to them, oh, okay, so this is what the people want. We know where their hearts and minds are. Okay, we're going to follow it. They've become aimless. So I don't think necessarily that they deserve a reckoning. I think that that kind of language is very naive. Even then, that sounds stupid because this author is very smart. Reading through this, he makes lots of good points. But I think it's maybe a little short-sighted. I don't think they deserve a reckoning. I think they should probably readjust. I think that they should learn to live without Trump. But I don't think they deserve a reckoning. But there is another quote here that I'll read for you. Quote, this era isn't this isn't the era of the party boss. It's not as if the National Committee can simply announce Trump is done. The base is running the show. Key Trump pro figures like Rep. Marjorie Taylor Greene need only to hang on to one overwhelmingly GOP district to retain their national presence. 
while those last sensible Republicans have mostly been run out of Washington by the new guard. What few anti-Trump Republicans remain in national office, figures like Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, have already made their views clear to little effect. No meaningful reckoning is on offer. Still, as Trump brings his third consecutive campaign with a plausible shot at victory, it's easy to imagine one concrete result all of these reckoning demands could have. They could push wavering Republicans toward a reflexive defense of Trump, end quote. And this is where the author and I agree. The base is definitely running the show and has ended up hustling the party, or at least they've ended up hurting the party in the midterms. At the end of the day, a lot of people want a more moderate Republican party. They don't want a party that's so out there that some people on the left would probably call extreme. And of course, that is their bias, because if you're a person on the left and you think you're a moderate, then you're going to call the people that are a little bit further out to the right extreme. And to some degree, even from a moderate position, you could say some of the Republicans that were on the ballot this year were extreme. You could say the same thing for some of the people on the left, the progressives. They were extreme on their end. So we have a lot of extreme candidates. There's no doubt about that. But on the Republican side, they seem to be where the base is. They seem to be a little bit more conservative. I'm not saying they're extremists. I'm not saying they're the whole base is out there. But I'm saying that the base, the major... motivated force within the Republican Party, the people that are constantly going to go out there and vote for very conservative candidates, are pretty out there on the right. They're not closer to the moderate section. They're closer to the the center of the Republican Party. They're very conservative. They're very principled. And they don't want to give up on any of these culture war issues because they see a degrading of the nation. And I also agree with the author's point that by trying to reckon trying to come after Trump, at the end of the day, they're going to galvanize his supporters. They're going to say, and there's a quote that the author uses in here from Trump's speeches, which is, they don't hate me, they hate you, and they're using me to get to you. And whether you believe that or not, whether you think that's accurate, these people do think it's accurate. They think that these coastal elites, so on, quote-unquote, want to come after them, that they don't share their values, that they think that they're a whole bunch of deplorables. All of these attacks over the years that have built up, they feel like Trump has spoken to them, spoken to the common man, and that he cares about them, and that when they attack Trump, Trump has made the comparison, not saying it's a right comparison, but he has made that comparison and has stuck in those people's minds, that when they attack Trump, they attack us. So by attacking him more for coming for the reckoning, by constantly bringing up this January 6th committee and trying to indict Trump, they're galvanizing his supporters. They're keeping him in the mainstream, too. He doesn't necessarily have to do too much advertising. He doesn't have to go out there and constantly be making the most bold speeches ever because he's always in the headlines. When the two days after Christmas, I was going through Flipboard where I look up all my news and Every single story in the section of liberal view was a Trump story. It was until the fourth page, the fourth page, that I got a non-Trump story. He has been out of office for two years. 
then again, he did just announce uh, maybe a month ago that he's going to run for president for 2024. So that does merit him being on there. But none of those articles were about his campaign. All of them were about January 6th. All of them were about his tax returns. All of them were about an issue, a problem with Trump. And at the end of the day, the media, the media, including the conservative media, because there's almost always at least two Trump stories within the first two pages, they need to get past Trump. If they really want a change to come about, if they want Trump to get out of the zeitgeist, if they want Trump to get out of the spotlight, then stop talking about him. Stop giving him the attention that he wants and his supporters want. At the end of the day, if you want Trump gone, make sure you don't talk about him. It's that simple. He has no power. His most powerful advertising last time was saying outrageous things on Twitter and getting the media to just report on it all day and all night. The liberals hated him, which ended up hurting him. But some of the conservatives, they looked at his tweets. They said, that's outrageous. That's aimed at the swamp. And I think it's kind of funny, actually, even if I don't agree with the people telling me it's a bad thing. So that's just where I come down on this reckoning, the reckoning coming from the party. I don't think the party necessarily deserves it. I don't think a lot of the people that voted for Trump deserve a reckoning. But from a purely strategical standpoint, if you don't want Trump to get back in, don't constantly go after him. The reckoning doesn't need to happen. Trust me, it's only satiating your ego and your hate for Donald Trump, not anybody else's. And it's not actually helping you beat him in 2024, like some may think. All right, our last article comes from the Washington Examiner. A year in review, Poland and Ukraine defy Putin to emerge as a new powers of defense in Europe. So as we look back on a year that was full of craziness, there are a few new realities we must come to terms with. Russia is not as formidable as we once thought. China is a few terrible decisions away from an uprising. And the U.S. system is under threat. But there's also a new reality on the ground in Europe. A possible power couple, if you will. Poland and Ukraine. Quote, at the same time, this union was the only that captured and kept Moscow for some time in history, he said, referring to the early 17th century conflict. Regarding of how it was forced in the history, this unity and brotherhood between Poland and Ukraine is just undisputable. It will remain, in, remain for a very, very long time because every single Ukrainian knows that it has thanks to Poland that some of its relatives are safe. The states of the region have had their own difficulties, but they have set aside both bad memories by and large due to a common recognition of the threat posed by the Kremlin. That dynamic has received less global attention than German Councillor Olaf Schlutz's stunning announcement of Zittenween in Dean. Don't know how to pronounce that. I'm sorry. The impending rearmament of Germany in response to the Kremlin's breaking of the peace between states and Europe, but it could be more consequential on the continent, end quote. And the historian here is talking about the deep relationship that Poland and Ukraine share throughout history and how it's been revitalized and how it has really gone underneath the radar over this last year. So as Putin has become more aggressive, these two international actors, these two states, have been on the front lines trying to partially 
succeed at holding him back and keeping him in check. Of course, this would be impressive if they didn't have NATO support and NATO backing. But Poland's willingness to take on the refugees, as well as its willingness to funnel arms into Ukraine, knowing that Putin is absolutely hating them, lamenting them, sitting there saying, oh, you darn Poland's giving them giving them all these weapons, funneling them all this money from NATO. It's still impressive on Poland's part. And what the author doesn't ask is, should we stop funding? Should we scale back this funding? Because, like I said, it is impressive what they've done. And they've done it with NATO backing, holding off Russia as much as they have. But should we start scaling back the support? Or would that lead to Ukraine getting completely overrun by Russia? And I think it's an important question. So now that we know that they can hold their own, with NATO backing, I'll keep saying it, but they could still hold their own, should we continue to fund as much as we have? Or should we consider pulling back and easing off the gas? I think that, honestly, to see how they handle themselves without NATO in their back pocket is important. And also, if we start pulling back and Russia starts to win, we can always come back in with more money. But also, if we pull out, it shows Putin that it's we're trying to make this less of a proxy war. We're not trying to directly go to war with you, Mr. Putin, almighty, powerful leader of Russia, and that we're willing to let this really just be a battle between Ukraine and Russia rather than a proxy war staged by the West and NATO. And I think it's an important question that we need to explore. And if you have any thoughts on it, I'd love to hear them. Throw them down in the comment section below. I know that was a quick article, but the international sections never really are longest. But I will leave you with something, which is our daily delight. This one comes from One Green Planet. Worker at Pasture wanted to see which farm animal would approach her first. So farms and pastures always offer a wide range of animals to interest you with. Quote, at Knucklebum Farms, <laughs> it is a small hobby farm in South Florida full of animals who absolutely despise education and who have a thirst for mayhem. While the farm posted this adorable video on TikTok, it blew up. This worker decided to lie down in the pasture and see which animal would approach her first. Not to her surprise, an adorable little pig came over making lots of noise and going to snuggle with her lying down, end quote. And people had lots of funny comments from this or on this TikTok account. Quote, I love how the oinks progressively get more and more excited, one user commented. First piggy, human, are you okay? Second piggy, are we cuddling over there? Another said. And, you know, if you want to see any of these cute videos, if you want to see any of these cute photos, or if you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find everything. Also down there is the Twitter handle at your daily flip. Give it a follow if you would like. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.